Undersecretary Kemp, more people have lost the right to vote in the state of Georgia. They've been purged, they've been suppressed, and they've been scared. This is a man who had someone arrested for helping her blind father cast a ballot. He raided the offices of organizations to stop them from registering voters. That type of voter suppression feeds the narrative, because voter suppression isn't only about blocking the vote. It's also about creating an atmosphere of fear, making people worry that their votes won't count. And because Georgia is currently run by Republicans, I'll give you one guess as to which type of people had their voter registrations put on hold. Georgia's population is approximately 32% black, but the list of voter registrations on hold is nearly 70% black. <laughs> well, well, well. To stay in power, the GOP is using techniques like gerrymandering, blocking judicial appointments, and voter suppression, otherwise known as Mitch McConnell's version of the Devil's Triangle. And this week, they have outdone themselves. Uh, Chris Kobach just went down to defeat in Kansas. Wow. wow. Kansas. He really has pioneered, a, forgive me, a lot of the modern Republican politics of voter suppression. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Trumpcast is the show about the man who just fired his attorney general, Jeff Sessions. Now, a year or a year and a half ago, when things were simpler, Lindsey Graham, then an opponent of the president, said that if the president fired Jeff Sessions, that would be, quote, the beginning of the end of Trump's presidency. But since then, Lindsey Graham got on the golf course with Donald Trump, where According to Lindsey Graham, Trump shot a 73 in windy and wet conditions. I determined with a caddy friend of mine that that's impossible and came back this zombified version of himself. And now he'd never defy the president. So I doubt that even the firing of Jeff Sessions would lead the Senate leadership to push out Donald Trump. But we can only hope. So we had an election last night. And as a single issue voter this time, I want oversight of the capricious tyrant in the White House and his enablers. That's it. I got what I wanted. A House with a Democratic majority, a voice and a veto on policy issues, and the power and mojo to investigate the ethical, moral, and legal lapses of Donald Trump and company. Sure, I wanted handsome Beto O'Rourke and brave Stacey Abrams and brilliant Andrew Gillum to win their elections, and they did not. I especially wanted Gillum because he had sealed my full-on support the second he reminded Ron DeSantis, his opponent in the gubernatorial race in Florida, that DeSantis has neo-Nazis and members of avowedly racist groups in his corner. As Gillum put it, I'm not saying I believe you're a racist. I'm saying that racists believe you're a racist. And I've decided to call this the Gillum test. Instead of opining about who's a bigot or what each new dog whistle means, I'm going to leave it to the Proud Boys, David Duke, the incels, and all the far-right nuts. If they give you so much as a retweet or a Bitcoin or a half Bitcoin, you pass the Gillum test, QED. Today I'm talking about yesterday's election with Ari Berman. He's a senior reporter at The Great Mother Jones, where he covers voting rights. He's also the author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. He's fresh from his post, monitoring voter suppression in real time yesterday. I'll be back with Ari in just a minute, but first, the tweets. Okay, here we go. Florida. 
Very important. Get out and vote for Florida congressional candidate Michael Watts, Republican. He has my strong endorsement. Congressman Randy Holtgren, Republican of Illinois, is doing a great job. Get out and vote for Randy. Total endorsement. Epstein, all the way in Michigan, House 11. She's a wonderful person and at the same time, a real fighter, has my strong endorsement. Bob Eugen, successful all his life, would be a great senator from New Jersey. He has my complete and total endorsement. Get out and vote for Bob. Big deal. The Democrats got the House of Representatives. I never liked the House. Terrible House. Horrible House. Everyone knows the real decisions are made in the Senate, which, by the way, we won. Also, all the good governorships. Don't take your victory lap so fast, Dems. Blue wave goodbye. Joining me on the line is Ari Berman. Welcome, Ari. Hey, Virginia. Thanks for having me. Good to talk to you. So if today's presser is any indication, our President Donald Trump seems unhappy with the election results last night and the specter of possible House committees that might investigate him in a Democratic majority House. How did you respond to the election? Well, I was looking at a lot of stuff that was different than what other people were looking at, because I was looking at voting issues, both in terms of the problems that people had casting ballots uh, during the election, and then also uh, what the election meant for voting rights more broadly. So there were ballot initiatives in seven states to expand voting rights that I was paying attention to. There were races that were really important for voting rights, uh, governor's races, uh, secretary of state races, state legislative races, things like that. So while everyone was focusing on the House and then the Senate, I was actually focusing on completely different stuff that I thought was really important but wasn't getting as much attention. Well, I mean, you are at you're in the trenches at Mother Jones, which I think of as the master trench, which has been <laughs> relentless in in um, covering this president. And you're there covering the extraordinarily important and I think maddening issue of voter rights and voter suppression there. Um, and you've written the book on voter suppression. So what were these? Well, we were looking at the matinee idol Beto O'Rourke. You were paying attention to the more mature issues. You weren't swooning for Beto. You, you were looking at, you just said, these seven ballot initiatives. I'm embarrassed to say I don't even know what those were. Yeah, I'll walk you through it. So there was some really important stuff on the ballot that didn't get as much attention as some of these marquee races. The most important ballot initiative was in Florida, uh, which they passed the initiative that could restore voting rights to ex-felons there. And that could restore voting rights to up to 1.4 million ex-felons, which is a huge number of people. Because Florida is one of only four states that prevent ex-felons from voting. So even after you've served your time, paid your debt to society, you still can't vote in Florida. And that means that one in ten people in Florida who have a felony conviction can't vote, including one in five African Americans. So while all the stuff was going on with Rick Scott and Bill Nelson and Ron DeSantis and Andrew Gillum, nobody was mentioning that 
over 1.4 million people just couldn't even vote in the election because of a past mistake they had made. If they lived in Ohio or Michigan or pretty much any other state, they would have been able to vote. But in Florida, they couldn't vote. And what was remarkable to me was this initiative needed 60% of the vote to pass. It got 65% of the vote. So at the same time, you had Trump voters voting for Rick Scott, voting for Ron DeSantis. You had the same people voting to restore voting rights up to 1.4 million ex-felons, which is thought of mm-hmm. as a quote-unquote liberal issue. So that was just one of the seven things on the ballot. But that was a huge thing that I think got kind of lost amidst all the madness last night. Yeah, there was a there was a brief cheer for it, and then people moved on to the rest of the horse racing. I want to back up because that, as you say, that is an extremely important issue, the felons ex-felons could vote again. But what is the history of disenfranchising convicted felons? Well, we have a very long history of disenfranchising convicted felons. And in fact, this was one of the first ways that states tried to limit voting rights for black Americans. So what happened was a Florida's felon disenfranchisement law dates back to after the Civil War. So, you know, the Civil War ends, Florida has to basically uh, say that they are going to follow the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendment, giving equal rights to African Americans. The Confederates who run Florida aren't so crazy about this. So Mm -hmm. what they decide to do is they pass this law basically saying anyone who has a felony can't vote. And by the way, we are going to charge all of these African Americans, Florida, with these minor crimes like vagrancy, for example. Mm -hmm. And then if they get these felonies, which are in many cases totally unfair sentences to begin with, they're then not going to be able to vote. So actually what Florida did after the Civil War was pass this felon disenfranchisement law to prevent newly enfranchised African Americans from actually being enfranchised. And amazingly, this has lasted since then. This is like literally a Jim Crow law that lasted until November 6, 2018. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. undergone some modifications. But basically what happened in Florida was the criminal justice state just kept growing, that mass incarceration kept getting worse and worse and worse. So you had more and more and more people becoming felons. In Florida, you can get a felony for doing things like disturbing a lobster trap (laughs) or trespassing on a uh, construction site. There's a saying that says, go on vacation, leave on probation. And so they're just, they're just like giving out felonies like it was candy. Yeah. And then they're saying, you know what, if you committed this felony, even if you didn't go to jail, and then even, you know, after you've had a totally clean record, you still can't vote. And so it just was amazing to me that in the most important swing state in the country, or one of the most important swing states in the country, 10% of the public just couldn't even vote in the last election. So in in felonious Florida, as I think another podcast calls it, um, why would people who otherwise were either on the fence or gunning for Trump in the election go for this issue that, as you say, is an issue dear to the heart mostly of Democrats? Well, that's a re- that's a really good question. Yeah, and the the coalition uh, that supported this did an incredible job with conservative outreach. That basically what they did is they put. Uh, conservative Republicans at the center of this campaign. And amazingly, in a very hotly contested election year, they took the conversation away from partisan politics. They were basically saying, we don't care who you support. You support Donald Trump, you support Rick Scott, you support Andrew Gillum, you support Barack Obama. We believe that when you have paid a debt to society, you've paid a debt, you should be able to vote. And we don't care if you vote for Trump, we don't care if you vote for Gillum, but we just want you to be able to vote. And that message resonated with a lot of people. And in Mm -hmm. fact, even Rick Scott, 
who has overseen this felon disenfranchisement regime, regime basically said he wasn't going to take a position on this because mm-hmm. I think he knew that there were a lot of Trump supporters that probably were locked up also, that there was a lot of white Republicans sitting in jail in Florida as well, alongside Latinos, African Americans, and others. And they're not so crazy about not being able to vote either. And It does, so, it does seem like some of the people who want prison reform, like Jared Kushner and, and maybe one day Paul Manafort, are, <laughs> uh, have, have, have a loved one let's say, who is um, doing his time or is a felon. Uh, Anyway, so this is one in five African-Americans who were, did you say? Who weren't able to vote in the last election. That's amazing. All right. So disenfranchisement of felons is, by your description, and historically a form of racist voter suppression. The connection of voter suppression generally to racism was made there was a sort of startling um, run in that Jeffrey Tubin had with with your friend Chris Kobach <laughs> I mean in your subject of analysis Chris Kobach um where Tubin just explicitly charged Chris Kobach with a racist policy or a, a, taking a role in a racist enterprise of voter suppression when were we suddenly allowed to say that i mean why is why is that you know voter fraud is a particular dog whistle that trump uses a lot voter suppression we've all known was you know a proxy for a race issue but now we're saying it straight out well i think just People like Chris Kobach have gotten a lot of scrutiny, which I think is one of the good things that's happened in the last few years. Um, When I started covering voting rights all the way back in 2011, it was hard to get people to care about these Mm -hmm. issues or to even see the connection between the laws and the racist underpinnings of of them. But, I mean, you look at someone like Chris Kobach and you look at what his policies have done. So in Kansas, he had kind of two signature policies. Um, One was requiring proof of citizenship to register to vote. So you needed to have a birth certificate or a passport or naturalization papers to be able to register to vote. Well, a lot of people don't have those documents to begin with, and a lot of people don't have them on them when they go to register to vote. And this policy blocked one in seven Kansans, so 35,000 people, from registering to vote. Uh, And the federal courts eventually struck it down as as discriminatory and unconstitutional. But if you looked at who was blocked from voting, nearly half the people were under 30. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. these are voters in Kansas who are not uniformly Democratic, but they're more likely to not support Chris Kobach than to support him. Um, Mm -hmm. Then you looked at another law he had, which is the law requiring strict forms of government-issued ID to vote. And a lot of people say, you know, what's the big deal? Um, Who are these laws hurting? Well, there was a study that found that this law in Kansas reduced voter turnout by 2%, and which is a lot in a close election. We saw a bunch of elections yesterday that were decided by less than 2%. And the the largest drop-offs were among uh, black voters, new voters, and first-time voters. So it's clear that these policies are hurting some people more than others. They're hurting voters of color. They're hurting new voters. They're hurting lower-income voters that have less means to be able to comply with these laws. So, I mean, I don't think it is a stretch to say that what he's doing is hurting uh, black people or poor people or young people, because that's what the data shows. It's not a theoretical conversation anymore. We actually have data on this, and certain people are being hurt more than others. And I think that's why, not just in Kansas, but all across the country, Republicans have been trying to pass these policies to get some sort of electoral advantage. When you say before 2011, it was hard to get people interested in this issue. It seems like it's so fundamental to democracy. I remember a fourth grade, I think, civics test 
that talked about uh, where the answer to one of the questions about um, racist voter suppression was poll tax, the poll tax and literacy tests. The worst thing you could do was make someone prove that they were smart or pay to vote. And um, and that during, you know, during civil rights, the civil rights era, it is so surprising that it seems that as a nation, we lost sight of that as one of the most fundamentally undemocratic things you could do, that these policies leaked back in or, or snuck back in with with someone like Chris Kobach, who's who's not and he's not a member of the KKK. He's a he's educated um, and um, and somehow he decided to undertake this this totally serpentine, undemocratic mission that you know, let him take up the voter fraud, you know, prosecution or whatever that Trump briefly was invested in. How did this happen? What? Tell me about the making of a Chris Kobach. I guess that's what I want to know. Well, I mean, what what really was the turning point for this was after the 2010 election, when Republicans got control of so many states. So kind of the reverse of what's been happening in, in 2018, where you suddenly had Republicans in control of really important swing states like Wisconsin and Ohio uh, and Florida and Pennsylvania and all these other places. And one of the first things they did, and I think this was directly in response to Barack Obama's election, the record turnout that year, is they started passing laws all across the country to make it harder to vote by requiring strict ID or cutting early voting or making it harder to register to vote. And the first time I covered this was all the way back in August of 2011 for Rolling Stone. I wrote a piece called The GOP War on Voting. And when I wrote that piece, so many people weren't even aware of what these laws were, that they even existed, or that they just bought this rhetoric about voter fraud, or they thought that voter ID or other issues weren't a big deal. And I think it's been a, a steady process to try to get people aware of what's going on and then convince them uh, that it matters. And I think finally these issues really reached ahead in 2018. I don't think it should have taken so long, but in 2018 you had a situation where, like in Georgia, you had the Secretary of State Brian Kemp, who was restricting voting rights while he was Secretary of State and running for governor. And the same thing happened in, in, in Kansas with Chris Kobach, but I think this really struck a nerve with people that how is it that we have officials who are trying to shrink the electorate to benefit themselves while also overseeing their own elections while they're running for higher office? I think there just was something fundamentally undemocratic about it. So the amount of attention that voters suppression got in 2018 was dramatically higher than in 2016 or 2014 or 2012, all even though a lot of these efforts had been going on for years and people just suddenly noticed them in the last few. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, as an act of resistance or almost up to civil disobedience, Stacey Abrams's refusal to concede in spite of the fact that currently, you know, there's a legitimate margin. What is it? I don't I don't I don't I don't remember the exact number of votes, but tens of thousands of votes between, you know, between her and Kemp. Um, and that seems to be inspired in part by the fact that he's made so many feints at voter suppression that the legitimacy of the election is legitimately in question and that she'd be letting down the cause of enfranchisement if she if she conceded too quickly. 
Well, Brian Kemp has done so much stuff in Georgia that undermines the notion of a free and fair election. I, I mean, this is somebody who purged 1.5 million people from the voter rolls, who put 53,000 people on a pending registration list a month before the election, 70% of whom were African-American, 80% of whom were voters of color. Uh, this is somebody who falsely accused the Georgia Democratic Party of cyber crimes days before the election when people pointed out vulnerabilities in his own website that was still up. That fake press release, literally fake news, was mm -hmm. up on the Secretary of State's website as people were going to vote. Then we saw four-and-a-half-hour lines uh, in certain black neighborhoods because voting machines weren't working yesterday. We saw people that showed up that were on that pending registration list. They were supposed to be able to cast a regular ballot if they showed up. They either weren't on the rolls or they were forced to cast a provisional ballot. So, I mean, no matter what the margin is of this election, no matter who ends up prevailing, there were so many elements of the election that were deeply unfair. The rules were unfair. How they were enforced was unfair. The fact that the person enforcing them was running in his own race was unfair. If you looked at this from another country, let's say this was the former Soviet Republic of Georgia, not mm -hmm. the state of Georgia, yeah. we would have said, what the hell is going on here? This yeah. is Banana Republic-type stuff. But yeah. because it's happening in our own country, somehow we make up excuses that it's somehow okay. I mean, there are times like that since 2016 that I think we just can't take it in. That I mean, this is voter suppression is sort of too horrible to contemplate. There's also, you know, there's also the fact that we need to we have to invest our faith in a government. And we you can't carry around the idea that your president was illegitimately elected, your governor was illegitimately elected. It's, it's very like, epistemologically unsettling to think that the democracy is not working. Um, yeah, and I mean, I don't, I don't yeah. think that we should go around and say, you know, every race is illegitimate. You know, I mean, when, when Trump falsely claimed that three million people voted illegally, I mean, I think that was bad for democracy. So I think if people are making, you know, false claims of illegitimacy, it hurts people's faith in the process. However, there are a lot of things that aren't fair right now. There are yeah. laws in place. There were 24 states that had new voting restrictions. There were laws in place that hurt one party more than another. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that was just basically unfair. So the, uh, the election took place under an unfair system in many ways. And then you had not just the laws being unfair, but how they were enforced being unfair, that you had secretaries of state who were overseeing their own elections. And I mean, no other country does this. In, yeah. in all of Europe, for example, they have essentially independent bureaucrats and commissions overseeing elections there. Election days are national holidays. They have polling places at every school and church. I mean, we have a situation where we've just internalized that partisan people are going to be running elections, that certain people aren't going to be able to vote because they don't have the right ID or they couldn't register or they couldn't get off work, and that that's okay. And so in a way, basically, we have normalized voter suppression uh, through the way that we approach our elections. And one of the things that was fascinating to me, just to go back to these ballot initiatives, because it wasn't yeah. just in Florida, um, in Michigan, Michigan, in Nevada, uh, in uh, Maryland, they voted on Election Day registration or automatic registration. So you're, you're either be automatically registered to vote or you could vote on Election Day. In four other states, uh, they voted on nonpartisan gerrymandering. So essentially independent commissions would draw the districts. All of these things passed. In, in six states, all of these things passed 
with 60% or more of the vote. The only initiative that was too close to call was in Utah, which it was still probably going to pass, but it's at 50% right now. So to me, what I see is that if you go to voters, get the, politi- get the politicians out of it. If you go to people and you say, do you want to be able to register to vote on Election Day if you didn't get together to register or you got purged from the voting rolls? Uh, do you like the fact that a quarter of Americans aren't even registered to vote? Uh, do you like the fact that we vote on a Tuesday in November because that's when farmers used to bring their crops to the market in the 1800s? <laughs> they say no. Do you like politicians drawing their own districts to preserve their self-interest? They don't like this stuff. Right. Americans want the voting system to be like the rest of their lives, which is simpler and more convenient. Uh, and I think you can get a lot of Republicans to support these things if you take out the partisan politics and you just stop talking about voter fraud. Because mm. one of the things the Republicans are trying to do is just distract us. They're trying to distract us with all of this rhetoric about voter fraud so that we then debate voter fraud, as mm. opposed to saying, why don't we have automatic registration like every other country has? Mm. Why mm-hmm. don't we allow people to register and vote on Election Day? Why don't we have two weeks of early voting everywhere? Why do mm-hmm. we have three-hour lines on a consistent basis? I mean, people don't like that kind of stuff. And uh, I I think that we're getting closer to a point where we can get broad support for a pro-democracy agenda, but it needs to be removed from Trump and the rest of the political discussion, which is very hard. You know, um, we I think I've quoted uh, Gary Kasparov about these issues before on the show, but I'll say it again that. I think what he says is something like, if you want to understand the tyrant, don't look at what he does, but what he's afraid of. And um, in Putin's case, what he, what, according to Kasparov, he's afraid of is that the people don't want him to rule. So, you know, he will say he won by 70 percent in a free and fair election. It's obviously not fair. He puts down protesters. He doesn't want to hear their voices. He, t- you know, tightens the screws on the press because he's afraid he can't handle the truth, which is, you know, the second he's out of power, he's every, you know, he's fair game for all the people who dislike him and resent him um, and whom he's suppressed along the way. And the same thing seems true of the Republicans here. I mean, this is a very fearful thing for so many Kemp and Kobach and Trump to so many, uh, so many of these Republican politicians to be participating in something so that the voice of the people cannot be heard at the ballot. I mean, I know it's so simple, but it, but I mean, you must be very fearful for your power if you're afraid of anything like a free election, a fair election. Well, that's what I always tell people. I'm like, if, if voting didn't matter, why would people be trying to suppress the vote? Yes. <laughs> Clearly, someone believes that this has power. Um, and I, I think we're heading towards a situation of just broad minority rule broadly speaking, regardless of what happened in the House. Because, I mean, you have a president who lost the popular vote by 3 million votes, um, but was nonetheless assumed the presidency. You had a situation where fifty the the senators who voted against Brett Kavanaugh represented 54% of the population. The senators Mm -hmm. that voted for Brett Kavanaugh represented 46% of the population. Mm -hmm. Uh, You had a fact that a Supreme Court seat was just completely stolen from President Obama um, by a Senate where the senator in Wyoming has 46 times the power of a senator in California. Um, And, you know, what we saw last night is that in places where people live, in the growing areas of the country, Democrats did very well that not just in blue states, but in red states in Texas, in areas mm-hmm. that are growing, in Georgia, in metro Atlanta, in metro mm-hmm. Dallas, in Houston. Democrats did really well there. You know where they didn't do well? North mm-hmm. Dakota. 
Indiana. Mm-hmm. Those are places where they didn't do well. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm worried we're, we're moving towards this increasingly rural-urban divide. We saw it in 2016. It only got worse in 2018. I think that's one of the reasons there was such a big split between the House and the Senate. Uh, and the rural areas have a tremendous amount of power in our political system because of the Senate, because of gerrymandering, because of the Electoral College. Um, all of these things, and now because the Supreme Court, which is essentially a product of minority rule, is going to reinforce all of these Republican advantages. And so I'm really concerned, just broadly speaking, with the, the legitimacy of our democracy right now. And, and just because Democrats took back the House doesn't mean that people should just ignore this stuff and say, well, well, if they, if they won an election, then obviously the system is fair. They might have won 60 seats instead of 30 seats if there wasn't widespread gerrymandering. Um, so, I mean, let's not act like everything is okay just because mm-hmm. Democrats managed to win one chamber, of con- one chamber of the legislature in one election. I feel like Trump cast we will we will never act like everything's okay <laughs> until this is over. Um Scott Walker, so he I guess narrowly lost Wisconsin, can't legally call for a recount now because he himself tightened the recount law in 2016. Um yeah, tell us about that. It's just fascinating what what happened. I mean, you had a situation where the election was essentially decided in 2016 by 70,000 votes in, in Michigan, in Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. All three of those states just elected Democratic governors. So I think there was, there was something of a course correction that, that went on there in terms of uh, Wisconsin, in terms of Michigan, in terms of Pennsylvania. I mean, I don't, I don't, these states aren't blue. I think they are, they are now consistently swing states. Um, but what we saw is that it, it was such a close margin in all of these places. And it was, it was really close uh, in Wisconsin again, um, but that people got kind of tired of Scott Walker and kind of tired of what he did. I mean, from changing the election laws to mm-hmm. attacking public unions to attacking public education. I mean, this was a state, Wisconsin, that had the best voting laws in the country, the strongest unions in the country, the best public education system, the best environmental protections. I mean, it really was a state that prided itself on its progressive traditions going all the mm-hmm. way back to the early 1900s. And Scott Walker mm-hmm. just decimated all of that. And I think people finally said that enough is enough. You know, um, we might not be crazy about the guy he's running against, who wasn't the most charismatic fellow, mm-hmm. um, but we, we just don't want to be this Walker-Trump state anymore. Um, we want to at least be a state with divided government, not one-party rule. And I think that's what you saw in a lot of places. The other big thing in the election was that Democrats took back a lot of really important state races, and that, that didn't get a whole lot of attention. Um, but they picked up about six or seven governor's races. They flipped about six or seven state legislative chambers. Uh, that's going to be really, really important for redistricting post-2020. Hmm. That means you're going to have Democratic governors in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan and Nevada overseeing the process now, uh, whereas in 2010, Republicans basically had one-party control of the entire redistricting process, and so they were able to essentially cement their majorities for the next decade. Now there's going to be divided control or Democratic control in a bunch of states, which I think is really important. Is Let's talk about Pennsylvania for a second, because this was the first time we saw the result of the the extraordinarily meticulous redistricting that has happened, what, two years ago? After the presidential election, right? According to um, an amazing mathematical model, my my colleague at Wired, Essie Lepowski, wrote about um, something like one trillion simulations of how the districts could go meant to show that there was uh, you know, a hundred percent chance that the the current redlined Pennsylvania was designed 
to suppress the black vote, basically. Um, what uh, what do you think we saw in Pennsylvania? We have these new districts. In some cases, I couldn't figure out if a seat had flipped or not because it was sort of a new seat. Um, what what did you make of how things went down in Pennsylvania? I mean, do you think that was a credit to the new districting system there? We saw a lot more competitive races, and we saw a lot of Democrats win races that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to win uh, because the maps were made more fair. And I think the whole discussion of Pennsylvania, I think, was framed in the wrong way because what you had before was a state that was literally a, a 50-50 swing state that was decided by uh, 50,000 votes, 40,000 votes in 2016, and that Barack Obama won in, in 2008 and 2012, but Republicans controlled 13 of 18 congressional seats. And I don't think there's any way that you could say that Pennsylvania was a state where Republicans should have controlled that many seats. And so when the state Supreme Court struck down the maps, they made it a 50-50 state, which is exactly what it should be. So they didn't give Democrats an advantage. They hmm. made it a fair state where yeah. both parties can fairly compete and the best candidate wins. And so you saw Democrats, I don't know the exact number, but they picked up at least three or four seats. Um, yeah. And now, now the delegation is going to be about 50-50, which is what it should be. They have, a, they, have senator, they have one Republican senator, they have one Democratic senator. They have about a 50-50 makeup. They have a Democratic governor, they have a Republican state legislature. That's basically what you would think of Pennsylvania politically, as opposed to what it was, which is this one-party state that was just not representative of how the state voted. So after uh, last night, and I know this is your busy season, um, so I'll, I'll let you go. But um, after last night, I, I and, you know, Better O'Rourke losing and Stacey Abrams deadlocked and Andrew Gillum losing, I thought, I, I guess I tried to reframe it as a positive thing, which is we don't have the luxury of morale right now. We need to like morale is too much to hope for. What we need is is not feel good wins like that, but just a restoration of our institutions and of a sense of fairness, trusting in the elections again, seeing a kind of robust turnout, even if it favors the other side. Um, and, you know, and then hoping that a new Congress will serve as a, uh, you know, a check and a balance. Um, because, you know, when my better, na- better angels prevail, I know that what I want is truth and fairness and justice, not just a, you know, savage defeat of the of the Republicans and the Trumpites. Um, did you see reason to hope in getting our democracy uh, at least um, healthy again? A little I, I bit healthier. I did, I did see a reason for help. I mean, one, one thing is that there was high turnout across the country. So a lot of people were interested in these races and decided to participate in spite of the barriers they faced. So then I thought, I mean, to, just to go back to what we talked about earlier, I mean, I, I thought it was really, really important that you had these these huge swing states like Florida uh, and Michigan and Nevada decisively say we want to make it easier to vote. I think that's really, really important. I think if 1.5 million ex-felons, including 500,000 African-Americans, had been able to vote in Florida in 2018, I think Andrew Gillum would have been elected the mm-hmm. first black governor of Florida. And I think if we didn't have five-hour lines in Georgia and 53,000 people potentially blocked from registering and 1.5 million people purged, that would have been a closer election. And even if Stacey Abrams lost, we would have felt more comfortable about the conditions under which the election uh, took place instead of saying, was this a free and fair election? And so I think that there's a direct connection between the rules that we have, the laws that we have, and the health of our democracy. And I think that uh, as the conditions become fair, as more people are able to participate, 
the representation will follow from that. And so we're still a divided country. We're not going to get to some situation where, you know, you make it easier to vote and, and suddenly that's going to lead to all of these huge progressive majorities. But I think what we saw is that, broadly speaking, uh, people are in favor of small d democracy. Um, and that could lead to Republicans being elected in red states. That could lead to Democrats being elected in blue states. But I mean, I think I, I would like for us to be able to say, you know, let's debate the issues, let's debate the candidates, but let's not debate whether people are going to be able to participate in the first place, which is what a lot of 2018 ended up being about. Thank you so much for being here, Ari. That was illuminating. We'll have you back sometime soon. Thanks a lot, Virginia. Good to talk to you and happy non-election season. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Get ready for 2020. So that's it for today's show. If you've come to enjoy and even need Trumpcast, it's time you invested in your mental health. Pick up a Slate.com membership for less than the price of therapy, less than the price of a blowout. It's $35 for the first year. That's like one box of donuts. And we offer a full year of comfort with the virtuous feeling of supporting a free press. And speaking of free, you'll get Trumpcast and all our shows at Slate free of ads. And you'll get to listen to every single episode, not just the previews. So put down the donuts and sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus today. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Shirley Chan and AC Valdez. John D. Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. You can find him at JohnnyD23 on Twitter. Speaking of that, I'm at Page88 on Twitter. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.